Shelton indicated Frank is out of town in a gospel meeting. We're grateful for a number of visitors that are with us today and hope that uh, this time together serves the proper purpose of pleasing God as we worship Him together. I've been fighting some pretty serious sinus issues and so I hope that uh, my voice doesn't It carries enough for you to hear uh, what we have to say. This evening at 6 o'clock, it's my intention to, well, it was my intention to deal with this subject in John chapter 2 when Jesus was at the wedding at Cana. Did he create a fermented alcoholic beverage when he changed water into wine? Based upon what Shelton said, I'd forgotten that there's so much going on now in our state and in Georgia, right, where these governors are trying to uh, support the cause of fighting abortion. This has been swirling around our culture now since the 60s. And then in 1973, when the Supreme Court legalized abortion. You know, Christians of all people need to know God's view on that. What does the Bible teach? about abortion. So I'm thinking tonight at 6 we'll switch and cover that. And I hope you'll bring your Bible and maybe paper and stuff to write with and let's work our way from Old Testament to New Testament and see what we can glean from God's Word regarding uh, whether abortion is acceptable to Him under any condition. Topic that I thought we would spend some time on this morning. You know, there are many things in the Bible that are joyous, exciting, uplifting, encouraging. In a sense, all of the Bible is, right? It's God's Word. It comes from God's mind. So why would we have any part of it uh, that would be discouraging to us? But there are some difficult topics, aren't there? And there are some difficult things that Christians have to go through. Now, that's just all there is to it. Uh, Tribulation is part of living the Christian life, and it can come within the church, it can come outside of the church, and there are distasteful, unpleasant things that have to be dealt with. And it has been my experience over the years, I think I've worked with five congregations full-time over the years, and there's always going to be circumstances that arise in a congregation where uh, members become unfaithful, maybe completely leave the church, That's usually the case most of the time. Sometimes they remain within the church, but they're engaged in activities that uh, will cause them to be lost. And God and Christ anticipated that. You know, since they intended in eternity for Jesus to come to the planet, die on the cross, and also in eternity when Jesus came and then returned to heaven to establish His body, the church of Christ. He said, I will build my church. And He did. So here's the receptacle from which Christianity is propagated to the world. The church is an extremely critical feature in God's scheme of redemption. And so he anticipated the fact that we're not perfect. There are no perfect Christians. We all make mistakes. We all have shortcomings. We're all at different levels of growth and maturity. But he anticipated the fact that, um, you remember how it was put in Joshua? Joshua 7, sin entered the camp. Well, don't we all sin? Yes, that's not what was being referred to. He was talking about a a glaring action that took place that had to be addressed, that could not just be allowed to, to go. There needed to be confrontation and dealing with the matter. 
Joshua chapter 7. So this is not uh, the most uh, thrilling subject for us to examine, but you know when you look into the mind of God through his word, that's thrilling. In fact, really, uh, they're not in, in the top ten list of thrilling things in this world and in this life. That's surely uh, right up there with other spiritual matters that are exhilarating to the Christian, the spiritually minded person. Here's what's astounding to me. There's more in the New Testament on this subject than, say, the Lord's Supper. It's an important topic to God. It always has been. Made great provision for it, for it under uh, Judaism and it, the nation of Israel. These are easy to understand. They're not difficult. The only difficulty in dealing with this subject is that we're dealing with people that we love, maybe relatives, uh, good friends, emotions get involved, and it becomes difficult in that sense. And by the way, I'm not preaching on this because I feel like it's probably time for us to disfellowship Brad or anything like that. It's just this is a topic for us to examine. Although it may well be, Brad. I don't know. I'll need to look into that. <clears throat> there you go. Do you love God more than people? Do you love God's instructions more than people? That's an easy question to answer. Well, of course we do. But when it comes to actually applying the Word of God in our lives, uh, when it steps on our toes or hurts our feelings or when it's difficult, then it's easy for us to, to fudge on what we know to be the Word of God. Here's an important passage that came from the words of Jesus, from the mouth of Jesus himself. You're very familiar with it. It was read to us a moment ago. If you're, and notice, by the way, this is pre-church, pre-Christianity. But in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find a lot of material that was preparatory to the kingdom. Like John 3, 5, unless a person is born of water and the spirit, he can't enter into the kingdom. Well, the kingdom had not come yet. So Jesus was simply giving information that would be relevant and uh, applic uh, applicable in the, in the New Testament church. And that's clearly what this is as well. He even mentions the church. So you remember if there's a problem between two Christians and uh, you feel that you've been sinned against, you go to that individual, try to get it settled. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. If he won't hear, then take two or three witnesses. Notice that these two individuals are to be... Um, independent, uh, disinterested in, other, in the sense that, you know, they're not your best friends. Hey, you know what he did to me? Come to me and help me gang up on him. Nothing like that. These are just objective witnesses that can come and witness the interaction that goes on on the second meeting. That by, notice this right here, that uh, he quotes a passage here. This is in fact from Deuteronomy, which was one of the regulations under the law of Moses that was to be implemented by the Israelites. And here it carries over into the New Testament church, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. If he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you. Notice this terminology here, heathen, a pagan, you know, not only a non-Christian, but in that day and, and age, it would have been a non-Jew, a heathen and a tax, collect, tax collector. They were typically considered to be unscrupulous and uh, self-interested uh, in, in how they advance themselves without any concern. So these are clearly reprobate type individuals. He's trying to make the point that uh, there could come a time in a relationship between Christians where you have to consider the other one to be lost, to, to have uh, left the Lord and to have entered into a state of lostness. 
If you're taking notes, uh, you ought to jot these passages down. Go back and read them and study them in your own leisure. Romans 16, I urge you, brethren, note, if you examine this term in the original, it's the concept of uh, taking note of them, taking notice of them, marking it down in your mind that this is the case with this individual. Uh, what is the problem with this individual? Well, uh, he or she causes divisions and offenses that are contrary to the doctrine which you learn. Notice that's a very broad thing. And so it could include a lot of different possibilities, uh, things uh, that uh, would cause division in the church. And the ultimate outcome then is to avoid them. Look at, start noticing these words that pop up as to, well, then what, what physically do you actually do in a situation like this? And there is one of those terms, avoid. Turn away from them in such a way that you are disassociating yourself uh, from them. You don't punch them in the face. You know, you don't file suit against them. Think of all the things that people have done, even in churches. Uh, no, that's, that's not the case. Um, this is more of a psychological and emotional pressure that is brought to bear on an individual that has become unacceptable to the Lord. Now, here's a passage in 1 Corinthians 5, a very specific context in the church at <laughs> Corinth, and yet loaded with information that is valuable for sorting out some of these principles. You remember here was a, a fellow that uh, was engaged in sexual immorality. The term fornication is uh, a very broad term in the New Testament uh, that includes any kind of sexual intercourse. So uh, homosexuality, uh, incest, polygamy, bigamy, um, any, any sexual uh, activity, specifically intercourse that is unacceptable to God, comes under that category of uh, porneia. We're told specifically um, that this fellow was guilty of um, his um, taking his father's wife, which supposedly would have been his stepmother, not kin. And notice the reaction of the brethren there. What should be the reaction of the church if uh, one of our members is caught up in, in a sexually immoral situation. Well, they were puffed up. What does that mean? I'll tell you exactly what it means in today's climate in the church. We've got a number of churches in our brotherhood whose attitude about such things is, you know what, we are not, we believe in grace. And so we are not going to take any sort of action against such people. We welcome them, we embrace them. Because we love Jesus, Jesus loves them. Do you not see that that's a puffed up attitude? A prideful attitude that is in fact wrong. It's not scriptural. These brethren thought they were really being big and loving and patient to tolerate this brother who was in an ongoing illicit relationship. And by the way, it's easier to do that. To just let it go. Because who wants to confront such a situation as that? The uh, New English Bible says, and you can still be proud of yourselves. Notice that's uh, an ironic, uh, sarcastic sort of statement. What should they have been doing? They should have been mourning. This is the Greek word that refers to what you do at a funeral. What you do at a funeral. This fellow's dead, spiritually. It's not that eventually he will become dead. He is engaged in activity that leaves him at that time, in that moment, 
spiritually dead in God's sight, unacceptable to God. He's going to be lost. What should we do about that? We ought to be mourning. You know, you want to talk about having a funeral in the church building for a physically deceased person. It would be perfectly appropriate to do so for a spiritually deceased person. He who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Once again, look at the terminology. The very similar to the concept of avoiding in Romans. Here is Goodspeed's rendering of this. Instead of being overwhelmed with grief at having to expel from your number the man who had done this. The uh, uh, Williams translation, instead of being sorry for it and seeing to it that the man who has done this be removed from your membership. These are good renderings. They're, they're paraphrases, but they're renderings. Shouldn't you be overwhelmed with sorrow and shame? The man who has done such a thing should certainly be expelled from your fellowship. I believe they've grasped what the Holy Spirit was saying through Paul. Notice also, I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged. So you and I are slow to do such things, but God and Paul had already judged this brother as being lost. And so the church needs to back that and confirm that judgment and harmonize their own behavior accordingly. In the name of our, here's what you're to do then. Notice this. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, there's a direct reference to the assembly of the church. And the New Testament indicates the church assembled regularly every first day of the week. Other assemblies too, but that's the central assembly. So this is a public action along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What does that mean? Destroy his flesh? What are you talking about? The destruction of the flesh is a reference to the pain that's inflicted on a person in this life, in this body, by such a measure. It would be humiliating. It would be embarrassing. It would be a, a, a wayward member would have a sense of shame about it, correct? Which is precisely what God wants inflicted. Why? So that his spirit may be saved. That is, you're making him suffer in the flesh so that his spirit will be able to enter into heaven and be acceptable to God. Powerful words, powerful passage. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now notice here he shifted to a whole other point. What's he saying? That if you let this brother go and you just ignore it and tolerate it and let him continue to function in the church, that pretty soon everybody's going to be taking their father's wife? No, that can't be what he means. But he does mean that it will cause the rest of us to be more lax in holding ourselves accountable to any number of things in our lives that we need to make certain we are pleasing God concerning. Leaven leavens the lump. Yeast works its way through the entire loaf of bread. So when sin in the camp is allowed to just, flagrant sin is just allowed to go on and flaunt itself and nothing be done, that has a negative, a dampening effect on the church and can cause other members, therefore, to become lax or lawless in their own attitudes. Another unbelievable, powerful, a biblical principle that's taught from one end to the other. Therefore, you need to purge out that old leaven. Again, figurative, but the point being that this public announcement in the assembly 
would be a public church acknowledgement that this individual is no longer considered faithful by the church and is being formally excluded from church membership. So what do you, you lock the door where they can't come into the assembly? No, of course not. No physical action has to be taken. This is all spiritual. It's very unlikely that a person who's been formally and publicly dealt with by the church would want to come back into your midst, but I've actually been in a situation where that took place. Now look what else he says in this chapter as he broadens the application of it. I wrote to you in my epistle not to, there's that first epistle that you referred to, Carrie, not to keep company with sexually immoral people. What do you mean don't keep company with? Don't mingle or mix or associate with, have familiar association with? In other words, you don't just encounter a person and just act like everything's okay and continue to have uh, a relationship. The way Paul put in 2 Thessalonians is do not keep company with him. The Bible's remarkably, unbelievably, and clearly harmonious throughout. And so you find a lot of helpful information in other passages that reconfirm your impressions in a passage that you might be looking at. Now, uh, you're not talking about associating with people out in the world. You can't really stop doing it. When you go to work, you're going to be around all kinds of immoral people. Does God want you to not be around them? No. You'd have to go out of the world. We're talking about in the church. So a person who's called a brother, don't keep company with that individual. And then notice that he mentions a number of uh, sins, but obviously this would not be a, an ex a complete list. Uh, there's nothing about these sins that excel many, many other sins. They're listed in Galatians 5 and other passages, but these would be sins that you can see would be harmful in uh, their impact. So really, by application, any unrepented of sin, any ongoing sin that a person refuses uh, to give up. Now this, uh, this expression has caused a lot of controversy. I've pe heard people argue that that's not literal. That's not talking about having a physical meal with them. Well, when you examine uh, all of the passages and put them all together, you know, if you don't keep company with somebody, then obviously that's going to prevent you from having a meal with them as well. Williams has, with such a person, you must even stop eating. The, uh, uh, the century New Testament, no, no, not even to sit at table with such people. I think those translations capture it. And so I went over to uh, other passages where you see the concept. For example, the Pharisees were very critical of Jesus in Luke 15 because he what? He would eat with sinners. That's literal. He was eating food, having meals with them. In Galatians 2, Peter came to Antioch and Paul withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed because certain men came from James. Before that, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he would withdraw and separate himself. So these are literal occurrences where he didn't have any problem eating with Gentiles. But of course, Jews had trouble with that. So when the Jews showed up, he would stop doing it. Also, Acts 11, same uh, scenario, same uh, context. Uh, he's accused, Peter is accused of going into the uncircumcised men and they said, you ate with them. You shared meals with them. I think that that's exactly what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. Now, what have I to do with judging those who are outside? You know, God's going to do that. Do you not judge those who are inside? In other words, when you and I are diligent about applying these principles to the local church, 
we are conducting ourselves in, in the place of God, uh, placing judgment upon individuals. We are to monitor each other's spiritual condition and make, you know, this goes so against the day in which we live. You know, a generation ago, World War II generation and back, less so, but now more than ever, hey, everybody, you do your own thing. Nobody has a right to say anything. If they lift one finger of objection, they're judging you and blah, blah, blah. You know the culture. That, that goes on and on and on. You've got to clear all that out of your mind and replace it with God's mind, God's thinking. And his attitude about this is, look, we're all trying to get to heaven. And if one of us gets caught up into a situation and we lose our spiritual senses and we're overtaken by Satan, we're involving ourselves in ongoing uh, unrepented of sin, other Christians have an obligation to try to save you, to try to rescue you. And we ought to have the same attitude uh, when we get in such a situation. And then notice, um, <clears throat> by the way, people would very quickly Quote Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged, right? That's used for anything and everything. That cannot mean how, what people use it to mean. Because passages like this say, what are you talking about? You need to be judging your brother. How do you harmonize that? When people use that passage, Matthew 7, they're really not interested in harmonizing God's thinking and coming to a right conclusion so they can live accordingly. They're trying to justify themselves, are they not? And none of us want to be confronted when we're doing wrong. Nobody. Children don't. Johnny, where'd you get that piece of gum? Was that the gum out of my purse? Attitude immediately. See, why? Because Johnny's been found out. Johnny doesn't want to divulge the truth on that matter. Because Johnny wants to chew the gum. And it goes right into adulthood with all of us. So we're back to, do you want to go to heaven? Then another quotation here from the Old Testament. Put away from yourselves. Once again, by formally declaring in a public worship assembly that this brother is no longer considered faithful, no longer in God's good graces, and therefore officially acknowledged as severed from the church, then uh, you are doing what God wants you to do in putting away from yourselves the evil person. Here is uh, that passage, by the way, beginning in Deuteronomy 13.5. We won't take the time to read it, but I challenge you to read these. In fact, we're going to have to finish this lesson on another occasion. I didn't realize this was so long. Um, but this, this is powerful information. Again, when you read some things in the Old Testament that seem like, whoa, this seems awful harsh, awful strict, just remember, this is God's thinking. So the problem is not with God's thinking, it's with ours. And we've got to remold and reshape our thinking and bring it into line with God's and be spiritually minded people, godly minded people. And you can be assured, and notice, all that's based on the assumption that the Bible is the Word of God. By the way, our Apologetics Press study Bible is coming out uh, toward the end of the year. It's just about to go to, to the press within the next week or so. And... Uh, it's loaded with this kind of thing, proving to people. We hope it goes out way beyond the church into the world where people can see, you know, all this propaganda we've been given about evolution and the Bible's not, it's got all kinds of errors in it and you can't prove that the God of the Bible even exists and all that stuff. It's loaded with proof of all that, loaded with it. And we are begging God to use it in a way that will be powerful in helping the very people who've been taught their whole lives all this stuff that's being taught in our schools and our culture 
And they'll suddenly be enlightened with, oh, there is a different view here. There is, a, there is an alternative, and this is proof that uh, what I've been taught is absolutely not true. So when you read through this, it's powerful. And by the way, putting a person away at this, in this context meant the death penalty. But there's the passage right there. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. Isn't that interesting that Paul in, in uh, 50-something A.D., in, the, in a Christian assembly would tell Christians you need to disfellowship each other when somebody becomes impenitent, it will not be restored. And in so doing, you'll be doing the same thing that the Israelites did when they executed number, uh, members of the assembly of the Israelite community because of their sin and engaging in things that would cause them ultimately to be lost. Well, I'm sorry that we didn't get through all of that. We'll pick another time uh, if Frank wants me to present a second half at some point in the future and uh, finish it at that time. <coughs> Hope you can be with us tonight and we will examine the subject of abortion. If you're in our assembly and you've not obeyed the gospel, you have an opportunity to do so through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. Or as a Christian, if you've been wayward, you can come forward and receive uh, prayers and encouragement from fellow Christians. Let's stand and sing this hymn together. See on the portals he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home, earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come should we tarry when Jesus is pleading, pleading for you and for me? Why should we linger and heed not his mercies, mercies for you and for me? Come home, come home. is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. Oh, for the wonderful love he has promised, promised for you and for me. Though we have sinned, he has mercy and pardon, pardon for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary.
Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. Thank you, Brother Miller, for the lesson. Thank you for your study in it. Um, if you'll remain standing with me, let's turn to number 550. Number 550. We'll be meeting again here. Uh, will we have the 5 o'clock? The 5 o'clock and the 530. Okay, 5 o'clock song service, 530 memory class, and then 6 o'clock we'll have uh, the worship hour. Number 550, after this, we'll be led in our closing prayer and dismiss. Uh, verses 1 and 3. Verses 1 and 3. When with the Savior we enter the glory land, won't it be wonderful there? Ended the troubles and cares of the story land, won't it be wonderful there? Won't it be wonderful there? Having no burdens to bear, joyously singing with our bells all ringing, oh, won't it be wonderful there? There where the tempest will never be sweeping us, won't it be wonderful there? Sure that forever the Lord will be keeping us. Won't it be wonderful there? Won't it be wonderful there? Having no burdens to bear. Joyously singing with heart bells all ringing. Oh, won't it be wonderful there?